was lost, the treaty signed. I was not caught across the line. I was not caught, though many tried. I live among you, well disguised. I had to leave my life behind. I dug some graves you'll never find. The story's told with facts and lies. Hi everyone and welcome back to this Legion Podcast Quickie. Um, I am Duncan McLeish, one half of Duncan and Bo Come Correct. Uh, I'm joined by my co-host, and you will have already guessed it, who it is because his name was mentioned in the title of that podcast, is my good friend, Mr. Bo Ransdell. How are you doing? I am so excited it would take a 12-gauge to my privates to calm me down. And of course, you will only get that reference if you watched this week's True Detective. So hopefully, hopefully, um, by now you have checked out our first Legion podcast quickie discussing the first episode of season two of True Detective. If you haven't, it may be worthwhile pausing this podcast, going back one week ago and checking out that show uh, and then coming back. Uh, and we will wait for you right now. And hopefully you've come back. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope that one didn't put you off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and also that you've seen True Detectives uh, 1 and 2 of Season 2, because otherwise we're going to spoil oh, so yeah. much shit for you. So. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's imperative that you are watching the episodes before you're listening to these shows and um yeah basically what we're doing uh, is taking a, a slight aside from our our usual planned show to do a series of a uh, true detective mini legion quickies uh, where we're going to take each episode as it come out week by week and we're going to discuss them we're obviously going to talk about the plot but we're also going to interject some theories of our own as to what is happening in this tv show uh, and this one should have plenty to talk about uh, i can't imagine uh, what you mean Oh my god, there was so much that happened this week. Um but yeah, so I I think we should just I think we should just kick into this one. Um as before, um all the episodes have the same writer, Nick Pizzolato, uh, or Pizzacal or I don't know, he's got an interesting name. Nick, we'll call him Nick. Yeah. Uh, so Nick. Nick, yeah. And uh, Justin Lynn directed this one as well. So he directed the first two episodes of this season. It was called uh, uh, Night Finds You. It's episode number two. A brief synopsis as listed on IMDb. As Ray and Annie delve further into Casper's gruesome death, truths unfold and more mysteries arise. Frank becomes more concerned about his business and missing money, so persuades Ray to follow up on something. However, this leads him into a situation with an unexpected outcome. I'll fucking say. Um, <laughs> I would say that's accurate, yeah. G- Jesus. So, um, I think, like, we'd, we'd watched the... We watched the previous episode. We we did our right. our, our show on it, um, and I think what we both said was that we weren't exactly sold a hundred percent on the show, but we didn't we didn't really sympathise with the the undercurrent of hate on the internet for the first episode. I thought the first episode set like some really interesting groundwork. I just kind of felt like we never went necessarily far enough with any of our characters to really relate back to it. And I think the second episode really 
I think because I watched what I did was when I watched the second episode today, I watched the first and second episode back to back and it flowed a lot better. And I think the reason behind that is that to me, the first like 10, 15, possibly even 20 minutes of the, the second episode really did kind of feel like the natural closing out of episode one because we got a, a bit more detail about uh, the, the the mythical city they're in of uh, Vici. Vici yeah. uh, so we got some, we got, and that was delivered in basically a monologue. It was like, we hear some trains travelling along and this is us telling you about Vici. And um, I quite appreciated that because it didn't feel like, it didn't feel almost too much like an unnatural conversation if we'd had our two cop characters and one of them knows all this stuff about Vici and they're just going to tell them. So I, I quite liked how they, they set up this this place. But after 20 minutes, things kick into gear and the, the kind of the, the, the kind of, I, I, there was a wash over me of right now we're going now we're now yeah. we're doing the investigation and um i don't know how you felt about this but i thought it was absolute genius that we get basically we have our three uh police officers from different jurisdictions all having to work together but we got the behind the scenes conversation with each of them with their lieutenants uh, kind of telling them you know this is what you're here to do right you're in the case of uh, Ray, you know, your job is to well, we're not saying don't solve the the murder, we're just saying make it go away. Um, and of course the, the, the kind of corrupt attitude that's endemic within his police force in comparison to Annie's police force, which is very much get the job done. You know, um, I, I thought that was really clever, I quite liked that because basically in, in this case when in season one we had uh, Rustin Cole and Marty and uh, Marty was very much the team player, but Cole was very much the shaking up the establishment. None of our cops in this series are shaking up the establishment. All three of them are pawns. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I and I think if you don't mind taking a small step backwards mm -hmm. to the first episode of, or not first episode, but the first scene of this episode in which you see uh, Frank and uh, Kelly Riley's character, whose name I'm blanking on at the moment. Oh, but God, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Jordan. Jordan is her name. So yeah. Frank and Jordan are in bed. And one of my complaint, not complaints, maybe concern for sure, was that one of the things that season one of True Detective did so well is to have this pervasive sense of, of weirdness about it. Yeah. And as if in answer to my complaint... <laughs> The opening scene. Opening scene of this is Frank, as played by um, Vince Vaughn, mm -hmm. relating a story from his childhood where his alcoholic father would lock him in a basement, I, I, as opposed to beat him. One supposes that he's locking him away for his own for his own good, kind of. And uh, but Frank is locked away for several days in one instance in his childhood. So much so that he has to murder rats to, uh, not necessarily to survive, but certainly not get nib nibbled by rats. Yeah. And and it concludes with him saying, and I, I actually have this quote in front of me, sometimes I wonder, what if he never came home? What if I'm still in that basement in the dark? What if I died down there? Yeah. And right away, I'm like, well, go on, True Detective, because <laughs> this is the kind of weird shit I like about this show, this, this sort of uh, metaphysical uh, sort of uh, um, 
pondering that mm-hmm. the show does at times. And But the reason I wanted to bring that up, not only because I think Vince Vaughn actually de- delivers that scene really well, yeah. um, but also because it starts this theme of whether or not things are real. Yeah. And and I don't I don't go so far as to imply that what we're witnessing is the dream of Frank in this basement or, you know, after his death or something, but it starts those wheels in motion of of what is real, what is not, what is a facade, what is not. Mm-hmm. And from that point, um, and, and I, I, I've started to like the character Frank a lot more. I think I, I respect the idea of this character who, uh, as he says in the same scene, has all this money, but he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know what's real. He like He's looking for something tangible that he can hold on to, which is what this land deal is all about. Um, the other thing I want to mention before we get going too far is something that uh, I, I somebody else had mentioned recently from the first episode, and it continues through this episode, and that's the idea of, of the impotence of the men in the show. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Vince Vaughn and uh, uh, Kelly Riley, or, or Frank and Jordan on the show, are, are looking at uh, IVF. Um, Colin Farrell may not, yeah. may not be the father of his child. And, well, and, and yeah, they see they say explicitly in that first episode that they had been trying for a while and nothing, you know, he says he'd been trying for a while and nothing happened yeah. at all. And, and then when his wife was raped, she got pregnant. Right, right. But it, it's still not 100% that it's a rapist baby, uh, yeah, which yeah. is what we, call, what we call them here in the States. We have special schools <laughs> uh, for rape babies. Um, so, but you got to keep them. That's on the books. Um, the, <laughs> but the thing that that's, interesting about that there's a later scene um that you know we'll probably talk about a little bit more in depth but it's when uh ray is talking to his wife and she's telling him hey we're going to try to get custody of our child and blah 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 and one of the things that she threatens him with is a paternity test yeah and he doesn't want to know like and that's the thing i think that really makes him cower is, is this idea of the son i've been raising i've either he's lied to himself or convinced himself or at least prefers the illusion that it's his child mm-hmm. and doesn't want to know the reality of that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so there, there, there are these kind of twin themes that I, I've seen in the first couple of episodes of judging what is real and what things truly mean mm-hmm. in, in a grander scope and also that every man on the show is shown to be you know, either impotent or at the very least, like there's a sexual almost anonymity going on yeah. in the show. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into some of this, I'm sure, but like the, uh, the Taylor Kitsch character is either very closeted gay or there's something darker at, at work yeah there. yeah there was a, a, a prolonged sequence of him looking at a rent boy get out of a car which was like okay <laughs> this is this is a slight spin on what i had thought was going on with that character um and he's he's a character still that i'm like i need to know more about you I need yeah. to, you know, I need to know because there's a conversation with his um, his girlfriend, but just before they apparently split up, where she presses him 
about the, the the Black Mountain stuff, and he, you know, says, you know, I don't I don't talk about what happened in the desert, um, and you, you're kind of in this position where I'm kind of thinking to myself, I really want to know what happened in the desert, <laughs> uh, and I'm kind of hoping that comes out. I understand if they choose not to spend too much time on it, but it does throw up a particular theory, which I am going to propose at the end of this episode. Uh, which and it's not mole people before you ask um although mole people might still be behind it uh, but yeah i do have a I have a specific theory about that character which i think could be quite interesting to see if it plays out the way right. i think it does. let's talk about the scene with his his mother for a second which was uncomfortable as fuck yeah yeah it, it is one of the more uncomfortable scenes i've seen on a television show in a while even mm-hmm. though nothing happens and it's all it's all subtext, but there is certainly the implication that his mother, at the very least, kind of has the hots for her son. Yeah. If if not more, you know, like there, it's not crazy to think we're going to get the revelation that he was sexually abused as a child. Yeah. But I think I think we're going to get that with uh, Rachel McAdams' character as well. Yeah, I think you know there's a, another weird thing that goes on in this show between fathers and sons. Like you know, uh, the character of Frank is mm-hmm. trying to buy all this land so he can leave something to his children that he doesn't have. Um, there's the relationship between Ray and his son, which is you know in his mind a perfectly fine relationship. Yeah. And in the child's mind, I'm sure, it's this horribly sadistic thing that his father <laughs> does to him on a regular basis. Unintentionally, but still sadistic. Yeah. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, Rachel McAdams and her father. Um, the, you know, there, there's the scene with uh, the mayor of Vinci. Uh, where oh, he yeah. talks about how disappointed he is with his son. His son, yeah, who's a, a, a coke addict or something, who was in some sort of... He'd, he'd obviously done a hit and run or something, and yeah. uh, Vince Vaughn and Frank had basically made it disappear. You know, and that's what yeah. he basically... Because Frank starts... And we'll get into like the specifics of that, but um, I thought that was a great sequence for Vince Vaughn as well, because at, at one level, I said last week, he was a kind of sympathetic character, and that I genuinely felt like he had feelings for Ray. You know, he was sitting with Colin Farrell, and he was, you know, you need to get a woman in your life and, and whatnot. And... Um, as soon as he realised that his money was missing, that facade dropped pretty quickly. And the real Frank came out, the criminal Frank, whether or not yeah. that is the real Frank, is, is left to be seen, whether or not it's a facade. But we saw the manipulator kick into gear. And um, I really love that character. I think yeah. it's... Because the, the first episode, he's so desperately trying to be the straight man, the, 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 the man who is you know trying to go legit. And in this episode, as soon as he realizes that things might be out with his control, he instantly falls back into, well, call this person up, call the people over in this city, um, get all the people together because I'm getting my money back. Um, and, you know, that character change it instantly reverts back to the Frank character, which I think we're going to find out more about as the show goes on. The relationship between him and Ray, I think, is going to come out. And time, and I think that's going to be our flashbacks. You know, like in the, the in the first season, our flashbacks were basically telling the whole story. Um, and then in present day, it was it was uh, Rust and um, Marty being interviewed and then telling you about the old day. I think that what's going to happen in this season is obviously all the investigations happening in this current time 
time frame. But I think we're going to find out more about exactly what happened between, you know, Frank and Ray, because it was once again hinted on, like, when Ray's speaking to his wife, and he says, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I sorted things out for you. And she says, don't put that on me. You did that for yourself. And, yeah, but and, I also like it that he counters with, it was my right by any natural yeah. law. Yeah, not, yeah. Not he's, law, natural yeah. law. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think he's, but I think, like, when he said, like, his lines have been really interesting. Like, he is, he is a, a, a weirdly complex character for someone who superficially doesn't appear to be complex. He's a bent cop. You know what I mean? He takes some money, does some jobs, or muscle much. Yeah, 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 drinks too much. You know, but th- there's there was a particular line as well where um, in the first episode when he was speaking to the lawyer and she says, you know, if we dig deep enough, you know, we're going to find out anything bad about you. And he says, uh, I welcome justice or something judgment. along those I welcome lines. judgment. I welcome judgment. And that's such a powerful, very uncharacteristic thing you would expect from a character like that. And then to follow up with the, you know, it was my right by natural law. Um, and even even his conversation later on with with, with Frank, um, where Frank is, you know, if, you know, if I, I I can make you, you know, chief of police. You can be chief of police this time next year. And uh, Colin Farrell, you know, raised very much, you know, I don't want that. You know what? Yeah, what, he he says I'm tired. He says yeah, exactly. And um, it's it, he's a he's an incredibly interesting character. I think Colin Farrell plays him wonderfully because you get he's very very, you know, uh, there's a lot you can you can almost feel the weight of the world on his furrowed you know brow. Um, on that mustache, and just that mustache, dragging it down. Yeah, yeah. You can you can feel the weight of every decision that he's made is there on him. But then you get some fantastic interactions between him and. Um, Annie, Rachel McAdams' character in the car, where he's he's almost he's been quite playful when it comes to like the the the, the vape cigarette, the e-cigarette. Yeah, and the and, and the feminism, like you know, I I oh. I'm a feminist. You know, I I show my support by having poor body image is a really yeah, funny line, and it was funny. Really it was funny. finally a funny show. Thanks. Yeah, Trudy and Nathan. you 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 said to me last week on this show. I'm loving what they're doing. I don't really like any characters, and maybe if we can inject a bit of humour. And I, I kind of feel like somehow the writing gods out there heard that you wanted more kind of weird, esoteric sort of conversations. So you got that beginning of the episode, sure, and sure. halfway through the episode, you got some humour. Yeah, and you know, to to stick with the esoteric stuff, just to follow this train a little bit. So, mm-hmm. in addition to uh, Frank's, you know, kind of musings about possibly everything that he's experiencing being you know a fleeting dream before death or you know the memory of life or something you know yeah, paper I love mache, the, love the term, yeah paper yeah. mache i love that term because we all know what paper mache is and we all know how fragile it is yeah uh that in addition to that there in the scene um later it, it, i believe this is the scene where annie and ray are talking to the mayor of vinci yeah um but he talks about how fleeting things are and, and how meaningless things are ultimately. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's kind of a throwaway comment. I don't remember it exactly, but but it's something to the effect of, you know, in a hundred years, who's going to care? It's that kind of sentiment. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I really felt like the show is 
making the moves to towards establishing this as a primary thing. I, I, I just don't think that Nick Pizzolatto is the kind of writer who, who repeats himself a couple of times for no good reason. Yeah. And so I, I think we're starting to get, like, the whole second episode to me is just a story of payoffs. Like you said, we have Ray getting richer and even his wife acknowledging, you know, what that... Even though I don't know if she's kind of dumb or <laughs> if there's just something else that she's referencing. But when she's talking to Ray about, you know, you used to be a decent person. Yeah, You yeah, always yeah. had this darkness, but something happened and the decency went away. And it seems like she would know the timeline yeah. of him murdering, potentially. Uh, have we ever gotten that confirmed that he murdered the, the person who... I don't. I don't know. I don't know if we have. I think it will come out. I don't. I don't know. I, I. I don't know how, how it's going to be. I don't know if they're necessarily going to come out and say it, or if it's just going to be a case of these comments are going to be made and we're just going to have to fill the blanks. So yeah. I quite like that. Quite like that. Sometimes true detective doesn't. Yeah. You know, feel the need to explain everything, and I. I you know. I, I think it makes it like one of the, that's one of the more interesting aspects of a TV show for me is where I can actually sit there and I can start to piece together my opinion on it without someone actually saying, and this is what happened and he killed the bad man. Uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. you get to that level where you're like, right, I, I kind of think I know what happened. Yeah, it's it's definitely a show that gives you what you need, not necessarily mm. what you want. Yes, it's the Batman then. It's the, yeah. it's, it's the Dark Knight of TV shows. It, it is. It is. Yeah, it is the the Batman of television. But uh, yeah, but in that scene with uh, the mayor, when he's also you know uh, talking about the uh, uh, the kind of temporality of things and so forth, um, that immediately after that, you know, you kind of have this conversation with Annie and Ray. Where, like you said, he's kind of playful, and she reveals the reason for all the weaponry she carries. Where she says, "If oh, any man, brilliant. yeah, it's a it's a great reason." And I don't know if I've ever heard a character on television, a female character, say things like, "What do you think it's like walking around where fully half the population could overpower you if they wanted yeah. to, and yeah. and if any man attacks me, he'll he'll bleed out in less than a minute." minute yeah which i thought was you know it's an incredibly powerful line and the way she, she actually I, I sometimes overlook her as an actress and i don't know why she's just a fucking incredible yeah i incredible. think she's quite good in about time yeah yeah i think i think, <laughs> I think she's you know i think she's a especially in this one you know she's playing her character is almost it's very difficult to try and track back the the archetype characters back to the first season but she has the single-mindedness of of Cole from the first season because she is our head is directly in you know the the paperwork as soon as she gets it she's already like looking to to map out GS GSP stuff and uh, GPS sorry stuff and um you know she seems the one that's like but that's her that's her mandate from her commanding officer as you get this case solved whereas you Ray is on some level kind of not working to what he's been told because at first like when they're interviewing the mayor Colin Farrell is kind of like well that's his finished and she asks another question and he's like well you know we should be gone and she's asking another question um, however later on he starts to take the lead in things as you can almost see his detective mind his curiosity 
starting to peek at certain things and he, he kind of pushes things in particular directions. Um, I love the conversation between him and, uh, you know, Rachel McAdams when they're in the car and he says like that, well, let's just get things out of the way. There, are, You know, people are going to tell you that I'm a crooked cop, that I do work for the mafia, that, you know, like all these things and she's, and I have a drinking problem and she's like, well, how much of that's true? And he's like, well, you know, it's, it, it was in reference to uh, that he has a lot of bad habits. And he he says, has a lot of yeah. bad habits. Yeah. yeah, and he says, "Well, I haven't lost one yet." Yeah, which you know, like I think that's, I think, I think that's wonderful. You know, like, what I'm saying is these these small, the the people that were complaining in the first episode didn't have that kind of not necessarily buddy cop dynamic, but didn't have that dynamic. It kicked in about halfway through this this episode, and it kind of carried on through it. And I I appreciate. I don't want a whole eight episodes of the kind of, we're in a car and we're driving somewhere and we're sure. having this conversation because I've had that show. That show was last year. What I'm wanting from this show is I'm wanting to really be in a position where, like, if you remember, in in season one, within the first four episodes, they pretty much explained who the killer is. It's not until later on that the pieces start to make sense. But all the, you've you've seen the killer. You you know, we, we, we know the, the involvement of the, the Tuttle Institute. We, you know, all these things are explained fairly early on they're not explained in this episode no, i couldn't i couldn't exactly tell you what the mystery is yet because we know it has something to do with the city manager casper being murdered that's the the investigation on paper yeah but with all this stuff with uh a a, a tie to what may be a sex cult we'll get <laughs> into that later but yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there's clearly something going on where, you know, uh, you mentioned it, uh, I think, on, on the Facebooks, um, but the Mulholland vibe slash Chinatown kind of vibe of this dark yeah. underbelly of L.A., but there's also these big machinations that are, are political and, you know, involve millions and millions of dollars. But at the base level, there's just something sordid and sexual about it all. Yeah. I think this episode definitely, like what I said in the previous episode, we got an image of like a bird head in a car. <clears throat> and I was like, that That to me is Lynchian. You watch that and you, it's castaway. It's not, we don't focus any time on it. It's there and then it's gone. And that to me is the, the one of the trademarks of David Lynch and one of the trademarks of Mulholland Drive. And in this episode... The, the the dialogue at the beginning of the episode from from uh, Frank's character very David Lynch you know the, the, and the, it seemed like the 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 Lynchian vibe permeated through this episode a lot more culminating in her end sequence which is right that's a that's a a, a David Lynch wet dream um, <laughs> right, it, yeah. it totally is but let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about like how graphic this season is compared to the previous season and what i mean by that is if we think about the previous season there was a particular video which showed um children being murdered which is shown to marty but we see his reaction yeah 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 right and i think it's wonderfully powerful because we see his face just we we experience it through his facial reactions his his disgust is ours and we don't need to see it yeah exactly this season exact opposite because when we go to see casper's body we get a rather blatant upfront shot of a man missing a dick yeah no shotgun right in the junk yeah and we we sit the camera sticks there and you're like oh my 
God, like that. So, so we we get that sequence. We get a sequence where um, Rachel McAdams' character is on her computer, and there are people fucking on that computer. It's blurred. Yeah, it's kind of into it. Yeah, I can see dick. You know, I can see dick penetrating. And I'm like that. This this is fucking. This is on TV. Why you know with that? So this show kind of feels like, you know, I think this show we're gonna see a lot more. We're gonna see a lot more. I think that's what the the point I'm trying to make. I I I think by yeah by nature of the subject matter we're dealing with, and Mm -hmm. and it's not kitty porn, which is is taboo no matter how you cut that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But yeah, I think. I think you're right. I, I think they're they're being more graphic, but I think unlike, you know, Marty reacting with disgust at what he's seeing, mm-hmm. the characters on screen aren't that phased by it. Yeah. You I think know? yeah. Yeah, definitely. They're not like when we saw the shot the, 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 the shot deck, um no one really there wasn't a massive, and, and you would think there would be, <laughs> but there wasn't really, and I don't know if that's testament to how battered these police officers are, that, you know, this is just an, you know, another thing that they're having to deal with um, in this scenario. I, th- I thought it was really interesting. Um, I thought there was, there was a couple of, once again, very Lynch-like characters in this, one being the therapist, who's a creepy little bastard. <laughs> so, yeah, he's very L.A. leather uh mm-hmm. which i like and you know the glasses and the i mean and the kind of pseudo psycho babble that he's spouting now it's just the best like it's mm-hmm. not it's not as crazy as rachel mcadams you know father obviously yeah. i mean he's still a psychiatrist so he's not talking totally crazy but it's just this well you know i was helping him and he would have these relapses and you know what they called hooker blowouts <laughs> later yeah, on which the show. I thought was fucking but that needs to be added to the dictionary <laughs> <laughs> right everybody's had one and it's, <laughs> it's where you take four grand out of an atm and then you find a, a barely legal hooker as apparently yeah. city manager casper was yeah <laughs> but uh, yeah i think yeah i mean uh the stuff with the the psychiatrist uh as you said is, is kind of very lynchian He's just a weirdo. And... Yeah, it's a character that's like, it's, it's not quite grounded in reality, but at the same time as believable as being grounded in reality, which Lynch does arguably better than any director out there, is kind of making you face-to-face with with people which you just wouldn't imagine would exist, but they exist. Uh, you know, these people do exist, but it's, and it's a, there's a weird kind of... I've always described watching his stuff, like especially Mulholland Drive, is there's a kind of weird woozy feel about that movie, which is is very uncomfortable. Um, and obviously the infamous scare scene of you know the guy reciting his dream, and this is, links back to the the Vince Vaughn thing about describing a dream where he's he, he walks to the end of the the diner. And at the wall, there's like this horrible demon that comes around, and the guy's like, "Well, you know, the only way to get over your dream is to do it." And then they walk down there, and this horrible demon comes around the, you know, the wall. And it's, you know, it's the, it's this idea that, you know, you know that we're talking about when with Frank's character, and you know, the specific things he says about that dream, which, like you see, is how we open this episode. So straight away, we're getting we're getting a hearty dose of old school true detective here, but. I love the fact that the show's like, right, that that kind of satisfies that itch you've had. 
now this is a police procedure. We need to find yeah. out who this killer is. And th- this this episode really focuses a lot of time on that, but also focuses a lot of time on exactly how corrupt the people, the, the main players are in this this scenario. Whether it's it's Frank confronting the, this massive company that's basically going to be buying up the land to to build the railroads and finding out that Casper never handed over his five million and to buy in he now needs to come up with seven million. Um it was so, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was he was yeah. So you so you've got you've got that element about it. You've got the mayor who is receiving kick he was a really interesting character actually. Like receiving kickbacks and at the same time telling Frank who he's had a great relationship for for six years apparently, but basically saying, you know, you're light here. You're light ten grand and that's you know, that's unacceptable. And maybe what you should do is sell off your casino. But when he gets asked, well later on when Frank says, you know, who's this guy that's interested in the casino, he basically tells him, you know, you, this money needs to be here at this time or it's this the next payment and then it's this the next payment and then that's you know, all deals are cut off and very cold and very much the the the, the ultimate corrupt mayor so we're, we're dealing with that element as well we're, de- we're dealing with frank like basically strong arm and race character into a position of you will do what i tell you to do yeah. and you will go out and you will find because what we get in this episode um to, to set up the end uh, of this episode is we find out that um Obviously, Frank knows that Casper had a taste for the hookers um, and he uh, goes back to one of his old clubs that he sold off. He sits and talks to some streetwalkers um, and one of them says, yeah, yeah, I know this Casper guy. He used to take me out to this apartment in Hollywood. Um, and then, obviously, uh, Frank then relays this information to Ray and tells him, you need to go to this place. And... Um, Ray does. Ray goes to the police. Yep. And uh, instantly we find out that something bad has happened here. And the reason we know that is because when he opens the door, there's a pool of blood on the, the floor. Um, and there's this weird, uh, once again, very David Lynch-esque sort of bizarre fucking room where everything's white and padded and there appears to be some sort of chain sex swing um, hung up where the, 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 the puddle of blood is. But then there's this weird, like, animal mounted heads on the wall yeah masks i would assume yeah which is once again just a wee bit creepy um but then we get this really interesting bit where you know there's there's a there's like a a mirror door and behind this mirror door there's a camera and this camera is not just recording um but it's recording to a hard drive and it appears to still be recording to this hard drive and then the bit that made me almost want to like phone up Justin Lin and hug him so hard until the breath was squeezed from his body is arguably one of the best sequences, like single shot sequences I have seen in True Detective since the man with the gas mask in season one. Um, And it's the, the man in black coming out from the shadows of the room in the corner of your eye. You see him come out there and our 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 our, our man <laughs> Ray is shot point blank shotgun right to the chest down he goes and then we realise that the person that shot him is wearing the bird head from season one which I I, I, I honestly wanted to I, I was pointing at the telly with my mouth open going oh oh yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. like 
There's no one there to talk to him. My wife wasn't in the room at the time. I'm like, oh, <laughs> she's like, look, look, look what's happened. This is amazing. Um, and he, you know, and then he walks over, pumps the shotgun, shoots him again. Um, and I believe he shoots him a third time, possibly. Cause we, I, I we thought it was out. just the two and then cut to black and then yeah. credits. Yeah, so we, we cut to black, we get we, we get the credits. And um, so basically what we have is we have Casper's kill, killer is a man or a woman, uh, but is a killer who wears a crow's head or a or falcon's head, depending on which way you want to look at, but wears this mask covering him, which straight away we're now in full-on bizarre occult right. territory for me. And um, th- th- there's a wash of relief that comes over me with that because those were some of the aspects. I, I'm not saying it always has to be like season one, but those were some of the aspects that really intrigued me about season one. And it kind of looks like we're heading that way. And I have a theory on who that person is wearing a mask. Bring it, McLeish. I think it is Taylor Kitsch. All right, explain yourself. Right, let me explain yourself. Because he was a mercenary for hire, right, with this Black Mountain. I'm assuming that's what he was, a mercenary from hire. I don't think it's accidental that he stumbled over casper's body i think he knew where it was and i think that's why he went out for his bike ride so why does he cut the lights and act all suicidal during that trip or because he he's driving way too fast to cut the lights for stuff yeah yeah yeah, i think i think part of him i think he's driving out there anyway and i think the, the he's obviously immensely psychologically traumatized i think he cuts the lights because i think he intends to kill himself but then when he realizes he can't he then pulls over to where he knows the body is. I, that's my... That's, okay, I, 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 I hope you're right. Because I was just thinking about the fact that we have talked so little about Taylor Kitsch's character. Mm-hmm. But because beyond his mom hitting on him yep. and him maybe being, you know, a self-hating gay... Mm-hmm. There is nothing interesting about that character. We've not. We have. We have the hint of an idea that he was involved with some group, and that is all we have. And that, to me, is the 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 the, the kind of the the interest linchpin to that character is that I want to know what that that I want to know what happened in the desert. You know, we, I don't talk about what happened in the desert. I want to know when you say I don't talk about my brain kicks into gear. I want to know about. Um, and there's something I I I, I don't know what like when as soon as he, he, he as soon as the shotgun was fired in that episode and he stood over and shot him again, I instantly thought that's Taylor Kitsch. I don't know why, don't know why. Um, I've typed it in to Google. No one else appears to be coming up with this. You're the theory. bleeding edge of conspiracy theory, sir. I am pretty much yeah, and I think. There's just something about that character which you're saying is we are two episodes in. We've had two hours with that character and we know next to nothing about him. Um, and he is one of our three detectives. Now, unless, uh, you know, at the moment he is a fringe character and he's doing a lot of the grunt work. Unless that changes, I think I think that's what comes out. I, there was something very almost and I, i'm i'm jumping and clutching at straws but there was something very military about the way that hit was carried out so okay. double tap it's the shot and then the shot again to make sure they're so you see their military or a zombie hunter yeah you know what i mean it's, it's, there's there was something about that and to me that's that's what jumped out of my head now i must stress that 
when I watched season one, I thought the killer, uh, this makes me sound like a bit of a dick, um, I was convinced the killer was Marty's father-in-law. Yeah, it's not the craziest thing I've heard. Yeah, because he was introduced a couple of times in it with next to no information and seemed to know people of power, but you know, and, and I was convinced for about two episodes, I was like, no, it's the father-in-law that's doing it. Um, so, and I was, I couldn't have been any further wrong. That <laughs> was so far wrong. So this is my first on the, on the books theory. And I will, I will probably change these quite a lot as we go along through the full eight episodes. But this is my first on the books theory. I think Taylor Kitsch is the man in the mask. And, there's, there's just certain things about him. Why why is he so determined to be out in the road all the time? Why does why is that the job he wants? You know, to, to me, and I know that's the freedom of being outside and all the rest, and not being stuck in an office, and and his psychological problems, or maybe it's because he does things on the side. Um, you know, I, I I start to fill in these blanks. So that's that's where I'm coming in with that. Do you think Colin Farrell's character is dead? No, no, neither no, no. do I. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's some anecdotal, I guess, proof around the internet of, like, here are shots from his character that we haven't seen yet, and, mm-hmm. you know, there are promo shots of him with, like, some kind of stomach cast or something, which makes sense, like, if he walked in and had... Well, all right, but this may lead, lead uh, or give credence to your theory, actually, is if he was shot by someone who knew he was probably wearing a vest mm-hmm. and shot him twice in the gut knowing this isn't going to kill him, but it's going to put him down. Yeah. Then I think that gives your Taylor Kitsch theory a little more credence because then he's not killing a, you know, a fellow cop. Yeah. And, but he's, he's completely sidelining him at yeah, least t- at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Takes him out and, and, Ultimately, do we think you know? On some level, Ray is the Ray is the pawn that's set up to make sure. On some level, if anyone in the the upper echelons of the mayor's office, etc., are actually involved in this, Ray is their their pawn to make sure it doesn't come back to yeah. them. And and I think that character's journey throughout the season is the journey back to decency of something. I think so as well. Yeah, I think that's... and I'm happy... Generally, I would think that's very twee and something that would annoy me, but um, I like Ray as a character. I really like him, which is strange because everything he's kind of done thus far has been fairly reprehensible. Um, But there's something in the understanding that and it's once again it's from what his ex-wife had said you know that at one point he was a good man and then something bad happened and he took the wrong decision he took the information from frank that he probably shouldn't have never had his hands on he should never have known who that was through anything other than hard police work but he took the easy answer it came very easy to him he did the knee-jerk reaction which was his natural law um and 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 got vengeance um and that's basically once he's had a taste of that that line that moral line has has become a bit more blurred and if the season is to bring that that line more back into focus i am more than happy about that he's at at the moment he is the only one out of the three detectives that i want to kind of see have a happy ending and that's not to say i don't want to see rachel mcadams have a, a happy ending i just we need to know more about 
that, that there's a great line about her dad having five kids and two have committed suicide. Um, was it two have committed suicide? One is in prison. No, two one in prison, two, two committed suicide. Suicide, and um, one became a cop, and that's yeah. her. Yeah. And um, I kind of want to know what happened there. They've uh, all yeah. grown up the same color. I, I think we will get some answers as we go along, but that's the beauty of the show. It gives you just enough information for you to go, oh, and then it's like, maybe next week. Yeah. Um, and I, was, I love that. I was way more into the characters this time around. I thought uh, Ray's journey seems really interesting, like you said, and, and as... You know, not eh, maybe stereotypical as that idea of redemption is seeing yeah. him walk away from that table after the meeting with Frank and having the waitress saying, hey, you left your money and him saying, that's not my it's money. Not, yeah, it's not my money. So. Then, then I, I, I was rooting for him. I swear to God, I was like uh, I was on Ray's side at that moment. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. I like the idea of this, you know, brush with death, let's assume. Mm-hmm. Um, that that drives that further, you know. Um, I do think that uh, the character of Annie was way more interesting in in this episode as well. Yep. Um, Taylor Kitsch still not doing much for me. The mystery is starting to grow and become really intricate and weird and fun and and very interesting. The side characters I think were much better. That you know we mentioned it earlier, but that three shot of you know here's ray getting his marching orders here's annie getting hers and uh here's uh taylor kitsch i can't uh, shit what is his character's name i can't call i can't keep calling him taylor paul he's paul Paul. yeah so paul getting his marching orders like all that was really well handled like really all the complaints i had about episode one were kind of answered by episode two with the exception of the paul character that i wasn't crazy about again um, yeah. but maybe I'm not supposed to, maybe your theory is right. And it's going to be revealed that he's a psychopath. And then I'm going to get real excited because there's a psychopath in the, in the midst and things are going to feel dangerous. Um, but I like the interaction with Ray and Annie. I like the, I like the fact that you're seeing this weird seesaw of as Ray starts to find some nobility, Frank is descending back into the more, you know, heavy hitting kind of Frank that, that fought his way to the top. Uh, and maybe that's where he finds his meaning, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the Casper stuff, like, you know, getting into this weird cult that is filming people in a sex wing. By the way, that is the Easy Chain brand of sex wing. And I, <laughs> they're not paying us. I'm just going to tell you, they make a good product. So... Um, but I thought this episode was an improvement on almost every level, and, and I, I'm real excited. Because we could be totally wrong. I don't think either of us believe Ray is dead, but what the fuck if he is? Like, where does this oh, that's, go? That, that, that could be... If, if they've killed off that character, that is the ballsiest move in TV history. You do not kill Colin Farrell in the second episode of a TV show. Right, like, <laughs> even Ned Stark... Uh, spoilers. Even Ned Stark <laughs> made it to, like, episode 7. Yeah, you don't you you do not do that. So I think yeah, he's I think yeah, it's I think the the shot might be the sober sobering up of that character. I think that kind of brush with almost death might put him might almost kind of set that character on a I want to solve this mystery now. 
as opposed to I w- kind of want to solve the mystery, but understand my masters want me to be a slight obstruction to what is going on. I think you might find that that brush with death just galvanizes that man's interest in solving and who shot him. I think that's the I think that's the really cool thing about this is we now we're now in a position where we have. Um, I really do advocate if anyone has the first episode, watch the first one and the second one back to back. And I think a lot of the issues that you have in that first episode, when you're flying it right into the second episode, don't feel that big at all because you, a lot of the, the issues that you have are, are addressed within the first 10 minutes of the next episode. It's almost as if they crammed that first 10 minutes in somewhere in that first episode. I think reactions would have been better across the board. Um, yeah, I, I think. Um, I mean, we'd already said that our interest was more than peaked in the previous episode. I'm at pretty much in with the long haul now. They could fuck around, and you know, we could see police officers playing solitaire on a computer for the next six episodes. And I'll probably watch it to the end because there is a man with a shotgun and a giant burp head, and he's he's shooting off dicks, and I want to know why. <laughs> right. Uh, you you ready uh, to have your mind blown? Do you need a hat, possibly, I, to catch the brain? I am ready. What if the rest of this season, much like uh, Vince Vaughn implied at the beginning of the episode, with what if he died and everything after is imaginary? <laughs> what if Colin Farrell does die? But we are never told that, but the rest of the season is all... You know the the brain's final firings of the character of Ray. I think I I would love to see that. I, I I think on some level I think that once again would be the ballsiest move in TV. I get the feeling that Nick Pizzolatto will have great difficulty getting a True Detective season three because um, I think I think the I think the the, the counter reaction to that. For, for, for every person that watched season one and didn't really watch it for the didn't really watch it for the the Rustin Cole massive dialogues uh, his his monologues on you know his philosophy of time and space and life and death and religion um, for people that watched it because they wanted to know who the killer was um, I think this would crush them yeah it, it would it would be the biggest like middle finger in television <laughs> history. And I'm like, yeah, like, the first two episodes totally legit. Yeah, everything after that completely just a, yeah, a like passing Colin, fancy. Yeah, Colin Farrell walks and in episode eight walks into a giant church where he's met by all these other characters who have died at different points, and they all move on to the afterlife. You would never do that to end a television no, show. No, <laughs> you would. You would never spend so much time focusing on owls. In the second yeah. season of a classic series, one that may have, in fact, inspired True Detective. I think, yeah, I think, it, I think, once again, coming back to that that Lynchian vibe, um, uh, you've got to think on some level. Nick grew up watching. He's obviously grown up reading the books of Chandler, and he's obviously grown up watching Twin Peaks. Yeah. I think it's. I think the, the the two you would think are so different from each other, but it's weird when they're married together. You get this very surreal kind of police procedural that I love. The no, once again the noir aspect was a bit better. The lighting 
in this episode as well, we had some more of those neons that I was kind of hoping for, that kind of Michael Mann feeling sections. Um, yeah, I, I genuinely think that we're in a position now where we've got a great cliffhanger at the end of the second episode. We have a ton of questions we need answered. Uh, whether we get all the answers, who knows? But at the same time, I think this show is doing exactly what I want it to do. Exactly. Had you spoken to me, had we done a show the week before this and you had asked me what I wanted in this show, I would have said to you that I want a really good kind of murder mystery, a really good kind of noir-esque sort of thriller. I would love some of those kind of esoteric occult actions from the, the first one. I'd want some of that carried on over, not like a full amount. I would want damaged characters that that kind of are trying to do the right thing under great difficulty um and yeah i would want like a creepy as fuck killer like the last season uh, i want something really creepy and so far these two episodes have given me all of them and um i still don't think it's i still don't think the writing is of the same standard as the as the first season, I think there's like I said, there's a couple of reasons behind that. The first season was far more minimal, minimalist in terms of how many characters we actually followed and spent time with, and we were basically living through people's recollections of things that happened. And it was only really two characters to begin with. And um, in this one, we're dealing with quite a lot of characters, so the narrative has been stretched a lot further than the previous season. But at the same time. Nothing that has happened in here just now has made me kind of roll my eyes in the back of my head and go, oh, come on. At the moment, I'm now, you know, that episode finished, I was like, no, <laughs> I need to know what happens yeah. next. Yeah. And that's 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 the, that's the hallmark of great television. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I really want to see what this next uh, episode looks like. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely on board. Um yeah, it, it episode two. I, I still have my issues with episode one. I I do mm-hmm. think episode two makes episode one better. Yeah, but uh, you know we. That's not how. Yeah, that's not how people view television. Yeah, right. You people can't view, view yeah week to week. So you've got to take that as that first episode was not great. as a standalone episode. It was not great. Yeah, but we get the true detective we deserve. Um, we we do get the true detective we deserve, and um, uh, yeah. Once again, um, we we hope that you're enjoying our look into True Detective season two. It's I mean, it's shaping up to be hopefully uh, an incredible season of television. We've only got six episodes left, um, so there's a couple of things you can do for us, which would which would make us happy. I can speak on Bo's behalf here. Um, one, if you're listening to the show and you aren't a member of the Legion Podcast Network on Facebook, it's incredibly easy to do. All you need to do is type it in the search bar for Legion Podcast Network. Come across Legion um, and uh, join that group because we will be, I dare say, more interactive as things move forward as to to, to kind of how we, we obviously don't want to post spoilers, but like today I was posting things about movies that I can clearly chart as being main influences of this. And we can continue that as the episodes go. The second thing you can do is rate us on iTunes. Go over across and rate um, Legion Podcast Network on iTunes. If it's five stars, the more of them we get, the more likely other people will come across our shows. And it's a wonderful network with great shows. Um, and also check out Duncan and Poe Come Correct. Uh, we have our first episode of our second season is up. We will be recording our second episode very soon. You um, said a bitch. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, uh, but I thought this was a competition. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that that second episode will be coming out real soon, and we have 13 episodes from the first season where we covered a plethora of um, movies covering pretty much all the the major genres uh, and some that you probably have never heard of before so you should get on that uh, and check out those episodes as well and um, yeah thanks thanks for checking us out but Bo is there anything you would like to add before we close out Uh, just again thanks and uh, remember uh, easy bed sex wings (laughs) they do it right (laughs) oh my god we should have that that thing that they do you know uh, this podcast is sponsored by Audible, where you can, you know, like yeah, that, but then you yeah. say, you know, go to Audible and type in audible.com forward slash. Go to Easy Bed Six Wings. Yeah, that's what slash DBCC. Yeah, for your for your ten percent off your your easy to use sex wing. Your your ten ten percent off easy to use easy to hang. That's the important thing, Duncan. A lot of people well, leave that out. It uh, to get it it hung. And the support right, because you're not alone in that sex wing, uh, God willing. So you got to have some structural integrity, and that's uh, Easy Bed Sex Wings forward slash DBCC, all your sex wing needs. Yeah, but I've got three requirements of a sex wing, bro. That is easy to use, easy to hang up, and easy to clean. Oh, yeah. No, this is all high-quality rubber. Uh, it's washable, uh, machine-safe uh, for some of the, uh, you know, for accessories you do get accessories in the box uh you know they assume you're going to have a lot of your own and and quite frankly i would too um but yeah you're going to get a a high quality product and and at 10 percent off you know you can't afford not to have an easy bed sex swing um so forward slash dbcc and uh you know tell you what uh send us some pictures and give us some testimonials what do you think of your Easy bed sex swing. That sounds like a fantastic idea. So please take care of yourselves. We will be back in one week's time for episode number three, season two, True Detective. Um, Bo, would you like to say goodbye? <laughs> yeah, goodbye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. This has been a Legion podcast. Ooh, quickie.